I am uh, David Speakman. I am a pastor, uh, but not of this church. I'm a campus minister with RUF at Davidson College, for those of you I've not met before. And it is my pleasure to uh, be here this morning to open up God's Word and to preach for us. Um, And before I do that, I just want to say thank you to this congregation. Uh, Thank you for loving me and my wife and my daughter, Mary Gray. Thank you for supporting us in the work we do at Davidson. Thank you for the ways in which... Uh, you've given sacrificially to our work, our ministry of the gospel at Davidson College. You've prayed for it. Um, you have loved us in the midst of that. And so I just want to say thank you. And it, it is a joy to be here with you this morning to, to show you a little bit of what, um, what I do and hopefully uh, give you a chance to, to enter into partnership with us a little bit more clearly. If you have your Bible or if you have your bulletin, I encourage you to turn open to Matthew 18. We're going to be looking at Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. It's printed there in your bulletin. Um, for us this morning. One of Jesus' favorite things to talk about was the kingdom of God. He's described as preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. And I think for us, the hard thing about this idea of the kingdom of God is that it's never exhaustively defined in the scriptures. It's always described. It's always described by parables and word pictures, but we never get an exhaustive uh, um, definition of it. And the obstacle we often face as Christians thinking about this idea of the kingdom of God is we want to minimize it and truncate it down to just the gospel of Jesus and me, the gospel of my personal pietistic relationship with Jesus. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, he's not saying your personal relationship with Jesus is like. He's saying the kingdom of God is is his effective lordship over everything, every last thing that he has made, he is lord over it. And right now, as we sit in this room, He is busy reconciling and redeeming every last thing that has been touched by the curse back to Himself. And so hopefully, as we look at this passage, we can get beyond this anemic view of the kingdom to to a bigger picture of the kingdom. The context of the passage we're going to read is Jesus describing interpersonal relationships. How do they work? How are they supposed to be regulated within this kingdom? And very specifically, how do you resolve conflict And how do you get beyond holding a grudge? How do you actually forgive those who have been uh, acting against you? So this morning as we look at Matthew 18, 21 through 35, we want to see a bigger picture of the kingdom. That it's not just a kingdom of mercy received, it's also a kingdom of mercy given away. So let me read out for us there, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. This is God's word. It says this, Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Please pray with me. Lord, your word is open here before us. And as surely as we read it, it is a terrifying passage if we take it seriously. Lord, you know the the lack of mercy in my heart. You know the grudges I hold. You know the record of wrongs I have. And yet I pray for all of us and for myself that you would somehow strike a straight blow with a crooked stick this morning. That you would speak through your word powerfully. That you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we could see wonderful things in your word. That you would unstop our ears so that we could hear the truth of the gospel. Lord, that you'd quicken our hearts to believe all that you want to teach us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Aren't you glad for people like Peter? I know that I am very glad for people like Peter. I'm not a lion-hearted, fearless, loud person by nature. And yet people like Peter have bailed me out of so many, uh, so many situations in my life that I can't even count them. Peter comes to Jesus and asks him a very simple question, but one that was burning in all the disciples' minds. Jesus has, in the verses before this passage, turned the paradigm of forgiveness of that day on its head. Three forgivenesses, uh, three offenses, three forgivenesses, and that's it. Jesus has commanded what seems like there in verses 15 through 20, boundless forgiveness for repentant sinners. And Peter senses that Jesus has the audacity to command this boundless, repent, boundless forgiveness for repentant sinners. He senses that it's a very risky command, that people could abuse forgiveness, that they could use it in their favor. They could actually leverage relationships so that if they sinned and they're repentant, you've got to forgive them. But he also senses that it's extremely costly, that you have to give up the right to be right in order to forgive somebody. You can't leverage relationships with records of rights and wrongs. You can't hold a grudge anymore. It's costly to forgive. And so to live a life of boundless forgiveness appears too radical, too risky, too costly for Peter. So he asks this burning question that's on all the disciples' minds right there in verse 21. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? But just to show that he's quick on the uptake, just to show that he's, he's savvy, he, uh, he devises his own formula. He takes the, this uh, rabbinical standard of three offenses, three forgivenesses. He doubles it to six, and he adds one for good measure. Seven forgivenesses for seven offenses. And he thinks this would be a safe measure to prevent license on the one hand and also to protect his own personal privileges on the other. But really, what is he looking for? He's looking for a fail-safe formula for relationships. He's looking for an escape hatch from the costly risky demands of forgiveness and indebtedness that really causes to anyone who's going to be forgiving another one. He wants to reduce interpersonal relationships, interpersonal relationships down to a very generous but precise formula. Seven offenses, seven forgivenesses, and that's all you're getting. The problem is that relationships and people don't work that way. I've learned that if you are standing in line at Kinko's Copy Center 
at 11 p.m. at night off the uh, campus of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, you can see some very interesting things. I was standing in line one night, and I was going to pay for some copies, and three people in front of me was, was a lady, and she approached the counter, and the man standing behind the counter looked like he'd been uh, making copies and doing print jobs for way too long, uh, and they were obviously not seeing eye-to-eye on her complaint about some of his work, and uh, something snapped in him. All of a sudden, he started to shout at the lady, I am not a machine. And so she started to treat him even more like a machine. Uh, and she repeated her complaint very slowly, putting the information in, accenting every syllable. This is what you did wrong. And that just made him more mad. And answer, I'm not a machine. And he's screaming. And he's pointing at the small army of copiers and scanners behind. Those are machines. I'm not a machine. Don't treat me like this. And I'm waiting for him to hop the counter and start beating down on the lady. And I, you know, I have no idea what to do. Uh, and I look around at the people online. Should we cry? Should we, should we run? Should we act like nothing's going on? Is this a reality TV show? Where's the hidden camera? What, what is the deal? And uh, it just went on like that until finally the lady stormed off. The manager came in, tried to soothe the man behind the counter. He obviously needed to go home for a while. What was going on there? She wanted to reduce her relationship to this man to a very precise formula. I will tell you the information, and you will, you will do what I say in response. The problem is... The people don't work like that. Relationships don't work like that. You cannot reduce them down to a comfortable, predictable formula. Plug and chug relationships, especially in the kingdom of God, are never mechanical. They should never be predictable. So why does Jesus command what seems like boundless forgiveness? How does he, why does he answer Peter in this fashion? Is he giving Peter just a higher standard of forgivenesses? Is it 77 forgivenesses or is it 490? You know, if you live with other people, you cannot count to that many forgivenesses. If you do, uh, then you're, you're way too far gone. Jesus is saying, I want you to see what mercy looks like. Mercy looks like this. It looks like a forgiving spirit. If you've received mercy, you're not going to try to reduce life down to a, a bunch of formulas for forgiveness. And so this morning, what we want to look at is, what does this kingdom of mercy do in us, and what does it do through us? We want to see what mercy means. We want to see what mercy requires. We want to see what mercy produces. So in the first place this morning, what does mercy mean? Mercy means real debts that are really forgiven. In order to give us a picture of what mercy truly is, in the first scene of this parable there in verse 23, Jesus depicts a king settling accounts with those whom he's entrusted money to. And the first guy is brought before the king, And he owes what seems like an incalculable debt. 10,000 talents. Now a little background here. One talent was equal to 20 years wages. This guy owed 10,000 talents. He owed 200,000 years worth of wages to the king. Now at a modern day salary, a conservative estimate, say $20,000, this guy owed the king in the neighborhood of $4 billion. And then we see in verse uh, 25 and 26, he can't pay the master, um, although the master is demanding payment. He gets down on his knees, he implores the master, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And we want to say, oh, isn't that undeterred American optimism? Just give me a little bit more time, I'll get back on my feet, and I'll pay you every last penny of it. Okay, 200,000 years, the guy can never pay it. But the king is more than just patient with the man. He's merciful with the man. He relents. He says, you're on your knees before me. You will not have to pay any, any amount of that debt. Forget your undeterred optimism. Receive mercy. 
verse 27 tells us that the king is merciful to this man because he's asking for mercy. Now that's what mercy means. It means real debts really forgiven. But what does mercy require? Another way to ask the question is, how much did it cost the king to forgive $4 billion worth of debt for this, uh, for this steward? You know, there's no sugarcoating of the offense. There's no overlooking of the offense. Someone pays the debt. The king absorbs the price. The king absorbs the cost of forgiveness. He's out $4 billion that was rightfully his because the guy can't pay. You see, friends, when God forgives our debts of righteousness, it's not just pie-in-the-sky mercy. It's not just greasy grace. It's not just uh, sort of this nice idea, oh, God is merciful because he's, that's what He's supposed to do. He absorbs the cost. You know, in all these parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom, He's not just the judge who exposes our need of righteousness. He's not just the judge who shows us how far we fall short of the standard. And He's not just the king who is the final source of justice and righteousness. He is the payment. You know, Matthew 17, right before Jesus uh, enters into this conversation with Peter, Matthew 17 tells us that Jesus is about to be delivered into the hands of men, that they will kill Him and He'll be raised on the third day. He pulls His disciples aside, not to say that I am the judge, not to say I am the king, but I am the payment. He pulls His disciples aside to say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be treated like a criminal, I'm going to be beaten within an inch of my life, and I'm going to be subjected to the worst torture known to man, crucifixion, because I'm going to pay all your debt. Mercy requires a real payment that is really paid. It's not just overlooking an offense. Jesus is saying that God will forgive our debts. He's not just stating what Christians have come to kind of cherish as a theological tenet of the faith. He's saying, I am the payment. Mercy requires a real payment that is really, really paid. Martin Luther was a German monk who uh, tried to make the sacramental system of Catholicism work. He was determined that he was going to be the one who filled every last requirement of the law. He was going to be the one who was going to be obedient and actually earn his forgiveness from, from the Lord. And so in pursuit of this conformity to the righteous standard of the law, Luther and some of his friends made a pilgrimage to Rome to the famous uh, church of the Scala Sancta, the, uh, the Holy Steps. 28 steps that ascend to, uh, to, <clears throat> to a huge wooden cross. Supposedly, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul both visited this place, very holy place. And so Luther and his friends make a pilgrimage to the Scala Sancta, <clears throat> and they are dragging themselves up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs, trying to deliver into themselves a, a more secure sense of their repentance, to really manufacture some contrition for their sin. And as they're dragging themselves on their knees up and down the stairs, they're also carrying uh, whips to, to, to beat themselves, to make them feel a little bit more acutely how sinful they really are. And so after um, a brief time of dragging themselves up and down the stairs, trying to, to manufacture this sense of repentance, Luther looks around, and every single one of these men, every, every single one of these monks is wearing a wooden cross around his neck. And he's dragging himself up the, uh, the stairs and down the stairs, and he sees this wooden cross around his neck, and he also looks to the top of the stairs, and there's a huge wooden cross that adorns the top of the stairs. And he begins to think, of, think to himself, why am I wearing this cross, and why am I doing this act of penance up and down these steps in front of this cross? 
And so he got to the top of the stairs and he stood up and he ripped the cross off from his neck and he held it up and he said, Jesus paid it all. Either Jesus paid it all or I have to pay it all. There's no middle ground. Several years ago, I was in Mexico City and I made a a trip to the Basilica Cathedral, which is one of the most uh, beautiful places in Mexico, one that the Pope visits every time he goes to to Latin America. And I saw sort of a modern-day version of this. Uh, The Basilica Cathedral has this huge open courtyard. There's a red carpet that extends about a half mile out from the front doors of the cathedral. And people who come to the cathedral... Uh, will start on one end of the courtyard on, on their knees and crawl all the way up to the doors of the, of the cathedral trying to, uh, to manufacture a sense of repentance and penance for themselves. And as I stood there that day, I watched person after person after person crawl the length of the courtyard trying to make themselves acceptable before the Lord. One lady in particular stood out to me. It was a lady who had to be a grandmother. Um, she was uh, definitely elderly, and she had both of her grandchildren holding her arms as she crawled on her knees, inch by inch by inch. And she herself had a huge wooden cross around her neck. And I couldn't help but think, what are you trying to pay? What are you trying to do? If the cross around your neck is really an effectual sacrifice, why are you doing this? But it's not just Martin Luther. It's not just the lady in Mexico. It's you sitting here in the seats today. What have you brought in with you this morning that you're thinking, if anyone knew about this... (laughs) If anyone saw this, they would not only not want to sit by me, they wouldn't let me in this church anymore, and I've got to drag myself up and down the stairs of religion in order to make myself right before the Lord. Friends, either Jesus paid it, or you're paying it, but you're not both paying it. Jesus didn't die just to enable you to pay off your debt. He didn't come to help you refinance your debt to make it more uh, more easy to pay it off. He didn't come to fill up your righteousness tank. Now it's up to you to maintain it. Either he paid it all or he didn't, but he did. The beautiful thing about this passage is that he's not only the judge, he's not only the king, he is the application. Is that your identity this morning? When you think about yourself, is that what fundamentally describes you? Or is your identity still in how much you weigh? Is your identity still in how in shape you are, or at least how in shape you are next to the person (laughs) sitting next to you? Is your identity still in uh, what kind of work you can do, what kind of esteem you can garner, what kind of uh, compliments you can get? Is your identity in how much people pay attention to you, how much they think you've got it all together? Is your identity in that you know the right people, that you've seen the right movies, that you can make the right sarcastic comments at the right time, that you know the right music? What is your identity? Is your identity that you have been a person who has received mercy? Peter, no matter what your identity is, no matter what you're basing your identity off of, Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, describes a Christian's proper identity. He writes this. He says, You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Did you catch that? Mercy is given to God's people. Mercy is given to those who can humble themselves before the Lord. They can bow their knees and say, I don't have it all together. Be my payment. Mercy is given not as an end in itself, but as a means to the end of extending His kingdom as far as the curse is found. Mercy is not just your identity. It's also your mission. 
we're not just a holy nation. We're not just vessels of God's love. We're also a royal priesthood. We're supposed to be um, voices to declare God's mercy as far as the curse is found. Not just cisterns of grace, but conduits of grace into a broken and bruised world around us. It's not just about personal salvation. It's about being builders and citizens of the kingdom. You see, so often we come here and we rehearse the doctrine of personal salvation. This is what mercy is. This is what mercy requires. But how often do we get beyond that? How often do we get beyond being vessels of God's love into being voices for God's love? It's not just about knowing how mercy is received, but how mercy is supposed to be given away. The kingdom of God is not just about entering into the kingdom, but it's also about expressing it as far as the curse is found. So in the last place this morning, what does mercy produce? If you've tasted of the goodness of the Lord, what is mercy supposed to look like in your life? Well, the parable doesn't stop in verse 27. It doesn't stop with the king relenting and having patience with this man who has the incalculable debt. The parable goes on. And what we see is not just this kind of nice, happy ending. We see a shockingly, terrifying, absurd response to mercy. In verses 28 through 31, we see the man who has been forgiven $4 billion go out and find one of his fellow servants who owes him 100 denarii. A denarii... A denarius is worth one day's wage. Eighty dollars a day for uh, for work. He owes him eight thousand dollars. Four billion dollar debt. Eight thousand dollar debt. He goes out. He finds this guy and he chokes him. He says, "You pay me what you owe." He can't pay him. He can't. Uh, he can't pay him. He gets down on his knees. He implores him. And he says, "You know what? Go into prison until you can pay every last cent of it. Until I get justice. Until I get what I deserve." Such a negative example of mercy received, not translating into mercy given away. That we really have to wonder, did this guy actually receive mercy? Was there any uptake? Did he actually taste of the goodness of his master? Was he really a member of the kingdom? Verse 33 is such an incisive, indicting question. He comes before the king and the king asks him, Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, friends, if you've received mercy, mercy will be given away. If we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, we want to talk about the goodness of the Lord. Mercy has a ripple effect in those who've actually become members of the kingdom. Many of you have seen the movie Les Mis, or you've seen the the musical Les Mis, or perhaps you've read the book Les Mis by by Victor Hugo. And you know that the central character in the story is a man named Jean Valjean, a captivating character, a man who had a ripple effect of mercy in his own life. Uh, Jean Valjean was an orphan, He uh, had no one to turn to except for his sister, who herself had seven children and no one to help her feed them. Uh, Just a child himself, Jean Valjean, enters into the house and he begins trying to be a father to these seven children of his sister. There's nothing to eat one day. He goes out and starts roaming the streets. And he finds himself standing in front of a a local bakery. Uh, There are these steaming, beautiful, uh, abundant loaves of bread on the other side of the glass. He stares at them, thinks about the seven children, he thinks about his own empty stomach, and he decides what probably many of us would have done. He, he decides to steal the bread. So he breaks the glass, he steals the loaves of bread, he doesn't make it down to the, to the corner of the street before he's apprehended, and he's thrown into jail. Nineteen years, he's a galley slave on a ship to pay off stealing bread to provide for himself and for seven hungry children. Unbelievable bitterness in his heart. He, he serves his time. He tries to make his re-entrance into society. 
and he finds that no one will have anything to do with him. They all know he's a, he's a former convict. They all know his past. But he goes to the one place that seemingly will uh, accept him in. He goes and knocks on the bishop's house in the local town. The elderly man comes to the door and he invites him in. He sits him down to a beautifully set table, food more than he can ever imagine eating, beautiful uh, silver knives and forks, uh, beautiful china dinnerware, beautiful candlesticks on the table. He shows him upstairs to, to a soft bed with a, with a beautiful view out the window. And he says, enjoy this, friend. Sleep here. Enjoy your night. Well, John wakes up early in the morning, and he is still bitter. He's still angry. He still wants to, to make his mark on society and, and repay them for all the, the bad things that have been done to him. He goes downstairs. He opens up his uh, knapsack, and he starts stuffing all the, the silver knives and forks uh, into his bag, and he determines, I'm going to really get back at these people. I'm going to serve my turn upon them. They treated me so harshly and so bitterly, I'm going to get back at them once and for all. And so he steals every last thing he can get his hands on. They'll fit into his bag, and he, he walks out the door. And again, he doesn't get far down the block before he's apprehended by the police. They search through his stuff. They find these silver knives and forks, and they take him right back to the bishop's house. And they knock on the door, and the bishop comes, and they say, Look, this man has stolen the knives and fork from your table. He's trying to, to serve his turn upon you. He says, what are you talking about? Those are gifts. Those are my gifts to him. And he says, John, you forgot to take the candlesticks. And he takes the candlesticks off the table, and he stuffs them in the sack, and he says, go. Go on your way. Enjoy them. One act of mercy. The man could have asserted his rights. He could have uh, prosecuted them to the full assistance of the law, but he has mercy upon them. One act of mercy by this man to John Valjean. And what does John Valjean's look, life look after that? He becomes a man of mercy. His life is defined by that one act of mercy. There's a ripple effect in his life. Everyone he comes in contact to, he thinks through, he sees them through the lens of the mercy that was shown to him. Mercy produces people who are willing to give up their right to be right. Mercy produces people who, who give up their right to being hurt, to licking the, the wounds, to keeping a record of right and wrong, to being angry and asserting rights at all costs. Mercy produces people who are willing to, to give up the right to exercise self-defense and self-protection. Mercy give, produces people who give up their right to be right. I'm always captivated and stopped short by the story of Corey Ten Boone. Some of you all have read uh, her book, The Hiding Place, maybe when you were um, younger. Corey Ten Boone and her family were Christians who lived in Holland during World War II. And as an act of mercy, they would welcome Jewish uh, folks into their house. They would hide them from the Nazi Third Reich who wanted to come in and take them captive and do immeasurable harm to them. And so Corey and her family would welcome these uh, folks into their house. They would hide them. And because of being so merciful and welcoming to these people, they themselves were treated like criminals, taken away to concentration camps, and forced to undergo the same punishment that the Jews whom they were merciful to had to undergo. Corey's sister, Betsy, died at the hands of uh, her captors in the concentration camp. Her father died at the hand of captors in the concentration camp. She herself survived, much by the, the Lord's mercy and intervention in her life. And she lived to go back into the very places where she was held captive and to declare the good news of the gospel, to declare the good news of the kingdom, that mercy can be received by folks. Now, one day she was uh, preaching in a particular town in Germany. She was at a church service in Munich. 
And she looks out after the service as people are streaming forward to, uh, to talk to her and, and um, to encourage her. And she sees the very man who was responsible for the death of her sister in the concentration camp, uh, who, who mocked her and her sister, who belittled her faith, uh, who, who treated her harshly and, and uh, poured out vengeance upon them. And here was this man walking forward to talk to her after the church service. And she says this, He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Corey, he said, to think that as you say, he has really washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Germany about the need to forgive, kept my hand to my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Jesus's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. How much did it cost her to forgive this man? It cost her the ability to leverage a relationship by holding a grudge. It cost her the ability to assert her rights, to lick her wounds, to say, you have done violence to my family. You're responsible for the death of my father and my sister. There's no way in the world I can forgive you. It cost her everything in order to forgive this man. But what we see in this act of forgiveness, this act of mercy, this act of giving up the right to be right, is something shockingly beautiful. She says that she couldn't do it. As she tried to move out into costly mercy and forgiveness, she saw how much she herself needed mercy and forgiveness. You see, friends, mercy is costly. It comes at a loss. Being merciful to those, forgiving those who have uh, hurt us and wounded us, costs us everything. It really is risky. It really is um, demanding. It really is radical. And yet, as we try to go out and forgive those who have wounded us, as we try to extend our hands of mercy to those around us, we see so much more clearly how merciful the Lord is to us. She says, when He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. Not just love for the other person, not just forgiveness for the other person, but forgiveness for us. The last line of this book is, Jesus alone can turn loss into glory. When you are merciful, when you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord and you become a merciful person, you're going to lose. You will not come out smelling like a rose. You will not come out um, with the, the Cinderella storybook ending at the end. You will come out with loss. But the promise of the gospel is this, Jesus can turn loss into glory. Those who have tasted mercy become merciful people. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, as I stand here and as we sit and think about this story, 
we can only say, be merciful to us, a bunch of sinners. Give us the love that we cannot manufacture. Give us the faith and repentance that we cannot well up within ourselves. And Lord, may you change the face of our families, of our city, of our church, and of our world to people who are shown mercy and can show mercy in return. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. Amen.